Well, hey, I invite you to join me in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 6 is where we will begin today. Guys, I'll be honest. Where we are in this story, it, it is a, a heavy moment, a sad moment. I had to find myself kind of looking and fighting the urge throughout the first service to like, how can I come up for air here? What jokes can I crack? How can I be like Dave Wachter and say something funny? You know, I'm just looking for that. Yeah, I got you. Uh, I, this text, this moment in history, it isn't one that lends itself to a jovial time. And so I just want to ask you to kind of enter into it with me perhaps for what it is and and see what it is that God is doing in these lives. In the story of Ruth, we're calling it from sorrow to savior. And we're in the sorrow moment of the story. Last week, we looked at the fact that during the time of judges in Israel, there was a family that lived in the little town of Bethlehem. There was Elimelech and his pleasant bride, Naomi, and their two sons that had weird names, Malon and Kilion. And there was a famine. And so they sojourned to Moab, which was geographically close. It'd be like walking to Elkhart. How many of you have walked to Elkhart? That's right, none of us, okay? We own cars. We don't know what it is to walk. What is this? Um, Can you imagine how many steps they were getting in a day? I mean, if they had Fitbits... They'd be doing real good. So geographically, not that far away, but culturally, worlds apart. They were sworn enemies with the Moabites. They had different languages, different customs, different religion. They had a general hatred for one another. They had gone to war with each other. People had killed people. It was not a friendly gig. So here they are in Moab when a cascade of tragedy strikes Naomi. First, her husband dies. Then one after the other, her two sons die, leaving her essentially destitute with two apparently barren daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Now, women in that culture worked every bit as hard as the men did, but they didn't have the cultural or political opportunity to thrive without a man there to represent them. So this was a desperate situation. Here's Naomi, a foreigner, unprotected, unrepresented, unvalued, vulnerable, grief-stricken, aging, and helpless to help Orpah and Luth, and Ruth. Sorry. The house of Elimelech is gutted right now. That's where we ended last week. What would you do in their situation? What do we do when life becomes painful? What does, what does faith do When hardship shows up in our life. Let's see what happens next in this history. And I'm going to take this in four key movements today. Starts in verse chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. Says, then she arose, this is Naomi. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for... She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return 
to the land of Judah. Our first movement here is one of providential hope. We have providential hope here because after a decade of loss, hope begins to break through. And it isn't much, just a story that we overheard about a place far away. But it is something. Yahweh has come to the aid of his people in Israel. See, God had made a covenant with Israel. He was their God. They were his people. This was all by his grace. He initiated, he showed up to Abraham one day, uninvited, unearned, and said, I'm going to make you a nation. I will be your God. Through you, the world will be blessed. And he would disciple them. And he would provide for them. And he's guiding natural events to fulfill his purposes. So God had brought famine to the land of Israel. But now he's bringing food. And God providentially ensures that Naomi, far away, hears about the work he's doing. When you're, when you're in a dark place, sometimes all you need is that glimmer of light. That whisper of hope. That sense that this isn't forever. In order for faith to begin to take action. So, we're told three different ways. That Naomi arose and then it says she set out and then went on the way to return along with her daughters-in-law. Now, interestingly, or- Orpah and Ruth aren't returning to Israel. They're not from Israel. They've never been to Israel. They're actually leaving home. But Naomi, Naomi is the central figure here. This is told through her perspective. And the way I see this moment, this is an act of faith in God from Naomi. I mean, why return to a people of a God who's allowed all of this calamity to come upon her? Why go back? Why not stay here? Why not stay put? But she's ready to entrust herself to God. She's ready to go back under his care. Maybe for the first time since they left Bethlehem a decade ago, she's turning to him. I call that faith. The fragile shell of the house of Elimelech is returning to the place that God wants them to be. And the movements continue here. Verse 8 says, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, they're already on the way here now, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. On the road, already en route, Naomi Naomi stops suddenly and gives an instruction that's wrapped in a prayer. And I love this. The trio of them are already mid-journey where Naomi's thoughts suddenly catch up to her and she comes to clarity. This, 
This feels so relatable to me. When you're on the road, and that's finally where you're your good thoughts come to you? Have you been in that situation? You're in the car, you're driving. It's something about kind of like the quiet, zoned out, repetitive motion thing that we have where our thoughts catch up to us. You've had the same experience maybe taking a shower every day, right? We are everyday shower people, right? Please tell me. We are everyday shower people. Otherwise, we are going to single filely exit out of this place today. Um, that repetitive motion of I'm somewhere and I'm zoned out and I'm not really thinking. I'm just taking step by step by step. I've just got it on 65 or if we're on a 76 and we're, we're flying down the road. And all of a sudden the thoughts start to come that really maybe are the honest thoughts we're having. Like, ah, I forgot to text so-and-so. Like, I, I need to do that. Why do I keep forgetting I'm not supposed to do it now because I'm driving. This is not safe. Or maybe for you it's more like, ah, it is time for a haircut. Maybe for the women in the room it moves along like, ah, should I go with bangs? Should I try bangs again? Yes, no, where are we at? I don't have much of that anymore, so it's not a thought that comes to my mind. Just trying to hang on as long as I can. Or maybe you're just thinking, you know, I don't even like this thing I'm driving to. Why am I going to the middle school band concert? Ah, because one of them is mine. <laughs> Rats. Can't get out of it. This is the kind of situation it was for Naomi. She's on the road. They're journeying together when all of a sudden she, she comes to terms with something. She wants Orpah and she wants Ruth to have good, safe, meaningful lives. So she tells them, Go back to your, return to your own community. Remarry new husbands. It's a practical plan. And she shares it with a providential prayer. And this is what I want us to catch here. She makes this a prayer. And let's not skip that Naomi is praying here. For a person in pain to turn to the God who's sovereign over their pain, that is a massive thing. That is a faith-fueled Thing. She asked for God to deal kindly with them, for God to give them security, provision, and rest. She uses God's formal name here. You see it in your Bible in that all caps Lord. She uses the name Yahweh that God had revealed to Moses. She doesn't use a general kind of generic term, God, for this prayer so that her Moabite daughters-in-law can understand this whole thing through the lens of their own religious cultural practices and everyone feels welcomed and included here. No, she's praying to the God who she knows to be sovereign over everything. Naomi has faith to pray to her sovereign Yahweh, even though this sovereign Yahweh has seemingly allowed her world to fall apart. See, prayer, prayer is the flip side of our doctrine of providence. Providence here, God's sovereign control over everything in life. The opposite applicational side of the doctrine of providence is prayer. Because of providence, there's prayer. Since God is there, since God is sovereignly in control, we talk to him. We 
walk with him and ask him to work. Since we know that God cares and God rules and God provides even in good and bad times in our lives the same, we live with an attitude of dependence on God. I read this this week from David Atkinson in a commentary on Ruth. He says this, Providence reminds us of our creatureliness and dependence on God. And that together with all men and women, we stand under God's lordship. Prayers and activity by which we acknowledge we cannot be on our own. We cannot be our own Lord. Providence reminds us that everything is not ultimately absurd or meaningless. Prayer is our way of expressing our yes to the conviction that God is working his purposes out in nature, humanity, and in history. So as we look at Naomi turning in prayer, the reality that that exposes about who our God is, I got to wondering this week, how is our prayer life? How is your prayer life? And what does your prayer life reveal about what you believe about God? Because if I'm not praying, if my instinct isn't to turn to him, if I'm not talking to him, what my lack of prayerlessness, my, what my lack of prayer is revealing is that I don't believe God the way God reveals himself to be worth believing. Naomi prays. Specifically, specifically, she prays that Yahweh would demonstrate the same kindness towards them, towards Orpah and Ruth, that they have demonstrated towards her. She says... May the Lord deal kindly with you. The word she uses for kindness here is the word in Hebrew, hesed. This term is going to show up as a theme that kind of runs throughout the entire book of Ruth. Hesed is a rich concept. It's a covenant term wrapping all of the positive attributes of God. His love and his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his loyalty. In short, it refers to the acts of loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. This is not just, oh, I did the right thing by you. We're all square, right? This is, I have gone over and beyond to show loyal love to you. It combines the warmth of God's love with the strength of his faithfulness together. This is the concept. This is the idea that Naomi has known about Orpah and Ruth. That they have been sacrificially, generously, faithfully kind to her sons who are now dead. To her husband who is now dead. And still also to her. So she asked God to be the same in return to them. But out of that genuine love for Naomi, in the face of all of their grief, Orpah and Ruth are still wanting to go with Naomi. They would rather be with Naomi than with their own people. So, the car fight begins. They turn the radio down. They stop paying attention to the road like they should. And the conversation gets heated on their journey. Okay. Okay, okay, so there wasn't a car. But it's the same concept. 
Here they are on the road in the middle of a journey, and they get into an argument. The girls push back against their adopted mom. They say, verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my wombs that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have a hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is our third movement in this story, and we see a sobering reality unfold. Lovingly, forcefully, after her daughters have started the fight, Naomi responds three times to her girls, desire to continue. She says, turn back, my daughters. Turn back, my daughters. No, my daughters. The way Naomi sees it, there is no future with her. No kinship connections she can provide. And this speech, admittedly, it's, it's culturally a little bit foreign to us. It doesn't make sense. We're like, were there no dudes in Bethlehem that these girls could get married to when they get there? Like, there's not speed dating yet? Like, what's, what's the holdup on this invention cycle here? Why would they need Naomi to have more kids for them to be able to get plugged into new husbands? Like, this is really strange. But Naomi has in her mind the Israelite custom of leveret marriage, which was all about preserving a family, a household's wealth and properties and name by providing a child on behalf of a husband who dies. We can see it spelled out to the nation of Israel in the law. In Deuteronomy 25, it says, If brothers dwell together, they're living in the same region, the same town, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. The husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. See, the preservation of the family name, of the house, that was what mattered culturally to everyone involved, most of these Israelites. Yes, it was also practically helpful that it would provide for the needs of the widow and some of the family there. That was fine. But it was most valuable to them that the family's identity was able to continue into history, into the future. So Naomi's realizing there's no leveret marriage opportunity here. There's, her, brother, her husband didn't seem to have brothers that she knows of. She doesn't have sons or more children that... Her daughter-in-laws could marry, both for her and for her girls. There's no leveret hope. And so, the way Naomi sees it, she sees no reason why they shouldn't go back to their own people in order to re-enter society. Certainly, it would have been easier that way. They wouldn't have to deal with 
showing up to Israel where everyone hated them because of where they had come from. Naomi makes it clear that she also sees herself as the target of God's overwhelming power. She's certain that Israel's God is the agent who's ultimately sovereign over her troubles. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now this is faith. But it is cloaked in bitterness. She's trying to see the facts as they seem. For all she can tell, she's a person that God has turned against. Not only is her own future bleak, she's not able to provide a future for Orpah or Ruth. And it was her God who was behind the famine, her widowhood, and now her childlessness. But I also think it's accurate and, and maybe potentially intentional that Naomi's goal here was to clarify the ground rules of what she was doing by entrusting herself to God as she journeyed back to Israel. What she's kind of saying in reverse here is this. If you choose to follow me into God's family, nothing is guaranteed. No hope of worldly prosperity is yours. The only thing guaranteed would be that Yahweh is your covenant God. Naomi is seeing now here better than most that being in God's covenantal family does not guarantee a life without bitter hardship. She's inviting them in this sense to count the cost of what it would be to belong to the Lord. She's like, hey, we're on this road. Where I'm heading, at the end of this road is Israel. But if my own experience of walking with that country's God, with Israel's God, of walking with Yahweh, if my experience of walking with him is any indication to you, that might mean no husband, no provision, no security, no children, no hope, no future, no rest. That's what's that way. But you guys are from this way. Are you sure you Moabites don't want to go back to Moab? The only thing you can count on at the end of this road, if you go forward, is having Yahweh as your God and belonging to him and to his fickle people. Are you sure that's what you want? She draws up the calculation for them basically like this. Israel equals that way equals God plus nothing. That's at the end of this road of faith. God plus nothing. If you go back to Moab, well, that, that might be everything minus God. Which do you think is the better math? The girl's life is in the line. They have some calculating to do. Verse 14 says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See? Naomi says, See? Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. And 
back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is the fourth movement. The beginning of the fourth movement of our time this morning. It's one road. There's two directions. One road, forward or backwards. With Naomi or without Naomi. Towards uncertainty or back to what's familiar. Into and trusting yourself to Yahweh or away from the care of Yahweh. One road, two directions. Orpah runs the math. She goes backwards. She leaves Naomi as Naomi goes forward in faith. Now, guys, I, I want us to be fair to Orpah here today. She was already on the road towards Israel with Naomi. She had been willing to go. She loves Naomi. She's weeping as she leaves. She does what Naomi tells her to do. She's showing some respect and deference to her wisdom. She does the logical thing that she can see in order for herself to survive. This is a critical moment for her. And on the one hand, the narrator never criticizes this action objectively, never straightforwardly holds it out as an example of unbelief, and we don't know another thing about Orpah. We don't know if she had a faith in Israel's Yahweh or if she left it. Or if she indeed went back to worshiping Moab's false gods. But admittedly, that seems to be the sense here. Moabites were the people of Kamash. To go back to them as a people was presumed to mean going back to their way of life, their way of faith, and back to what she knew she could count on, rather than counting on the God that Naomi knew. Don't you and I feel that same pull in our roads of life? Backwards or forwards? By faith or by sight? Back to what's familiar, back to what everyone in our community seems to value, back to the dreams and successes and stabilities and purposes that used to hold sway over us, that does hold sway over everyone else in our culture, back to, we'll just call it what it is, back to other gods. See, while the Bible never takes seriously the existence of other gods, it does assume their reality as objects that we seriously consider and commit to worshiping. While these gods are nothing, they still seem to attract our heart's desire, our soul's longing, our lives' enjoyment. But we each only have one life to live. We each only have one road to walk. As you walk down your road, whether it's in joy or providential pain, which way are you turning? Forward in faith or backwards towards a more familiar escape? 
I have to ask, how can you walk with God if your feet are planted firmly in the ways of our world? How can you walk towards God if you're busy walking back to ungodly comforts? It's impossible to follow God and anything else at the same time. One path goes forward. One path goes back. And not even the gymnast can do those splits. Our feet can't stay planted in both directions. When God makes us alive by faith, he causes us to start walking towards him. God-given faith moves in God-given directions. Faith moves forward. Faith moves forward. And it's not because we could. We were We were born with both feet firmly planted back there, unable to see or sense and know any other love. But made alive by grace, faith moves us forward. If Ruth wanted a future that was like the past she'd always known, if she wanted to continue to worship Kamash, she too would need to turn back to return home. To Moab. But Ruth, we'll see, had been given faith to follow God. Verse 16 says this. But Ruth said, do not urge me. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go... I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, Do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw, she was determined to go with her. Which is the overstatement of the century. um, Understatement of the century. Naomi said, no more. Ruth's pledge of commitment here to Naomi ranks among one of the loftiest expressions of commitment in Scripture. It's centered on Naomi, but it brings her into the people of Israel, and it brings Ruth into a trust in Israel's God. With radical self-sacrifice, she abandons every source of identity that any person could hold on to, let alone a a single, kind of destitute, widowed person. 
She's leaving her native homeland, her own people, her native language, all of the local places and memories that she's had, all of the cuisine, even her own gods. Ruth is transferring her sense of membership from Moab to Israel. She's transferring her allegiance from Kamash to Yahweh. She is entrusting herself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She goes from being an outsider who is even technically forbidden from entering the tabernacle as a member of the Moabite nation to now joining the covenant people of Israel, being a recipient of the loyal love of God, being counted as a full participant in their nation, able to worship God. This first chapter here in the book of Ruth is in a way the narrative of the most surprising conversion. Rivaling even Saul of Tarsus coming to know Jesus and follow him on the road to Damascus. In that sense, this is one of the great accounts in the Bible of the ways which God sovereignly works in the lives of those he has chosen to bring to himself. Let's look at Ruth's conversion here. Her turning to choose to go forward into God's people in the way God had revealed and made possible for anyone to know him at that time. She says, where you go, I will go. She's got a commitment to Naomi. She says, your people will be my people. She's got a commitment to Israel. She says, your God will be my God. She's committed to Yahweh. She says, where you die, I will be buried. This is a commitment forever. And she says, may the Lord do so to me. She's saying this by and before Yahweh. This faith moment is so instructive for you and I today. This is no shallow commitment that withers under the sun's heat or when life gets hard where God doesn't do what we prefer God to do. No. This was serious business. Faith is serious business. It doesn't come with an escape hat, an escape hatch. It doesn't come with an annulment clause. Ruth has this unique situation where she's choosing to be faithful to her family, to her mom-in-law. But she's recognizing that she's also now choosing to identify with, to be faithful to God and to God's people at the same time. She's committed to all of this under an oath to God's name because she now sees Yahweh as the supreme and most ultimate thing in her life. Those words, these words that Ruth uses, they are words of covenantal belief. They echo words that God used when he came to his people and made a covenant of grace to them. When he said in Exodus 6, I will be your God. You will be my people. God had committed himself to being a faithful, loving, loyal God to his people. Not because they earned it, but because that was his heart for them. And that was his purpose then to bless the nations. And Ruth is responding to Naomi and Yahweh both saying, I was with them, but now I'm with you. I'm walking forward because 
I now have faith. Do you have faith? Is this true of you? You still holding on? That's not faith. Faith moves forward. Faith puts everything in. Faith sees Yahweh as ultimate. Faith serves everything towards his purposes now. It's a gift that only God can give. And it causes us to move forward. Faith sees what Peter would one day see in John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go, he said to Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom else shall I go, Naomi? There's nothing else to discuss. No circumstance can change it. So, then, the argument stops. Naomi resigns herself to this situation. A quiet falls over these two travelers as they start walking down the road again. Two grieving, impoverished, vulnerable women move step by step in the care of their creator. What a story of faith we're starting to see unveiled. And the story isn't over yet. It's not even all of the first chapter. This is just the setup. But already we have right now two women, one with bitter faith and one with new faith, both living out a nightmare. And yet already we're starting to see that God has a purpose here. And this is a theme we're going to develop further in the weeks to come. God has a purpose for pain. God has a purpose for their pains. And God, their provincial, sovereign Yahweh, has a purpose for all things. Sometimes walking honestly with God in the middle of trials or suffering or conflict is the greatest invitation we'll ever give to those around us that he is worthy of faith. That he is worthy of trust. Walking honestly with God in pain can be the greatest evangelistic tool anyone ever portrays. It's frankly what we see here with Naomi. As Naomi walks with God through bitter affliction, Ruth watches her and follows. She follows into God's plan. We'll see Revealed here through the rest of the book. She follows into God's family and community, the people of Israel. She follows into faith in God himself. Ruth becomes someone who worships Yahweh as she watches Naomi providentially suffer. Naomi has kept things real about God's sovereignty in her pain. But Ruth still sees through that to a God who is worthy of her trust. Or more accurately, 
the same sovereignty that was behind her famine is still sovereign to be behind her faith. And in your my path through life, on our road, sometimes through pain, we can follow Ruth's lead. We ought to follow Ruth's lead. To be able to say along with her, God, I don't know it, but I know you do have a purpose. So I'll go forward in faith. I'll surrender to you. Because I might be weak and I might not understand. I'm unable to see what you're doing. But please, God, give me faith to trust you and follow you anyway. That's what we're learning from Ruth and Naomi. That no pain is wasted. That God has a purpose. And that we won't see all that our suffering brings about in our lifetime. But we can learn to see God himself in and through our suffering in the meantime. He is worthy of our faith.